Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello i'm matt Shawley. this is the red box podcast well we've got to the end of another week so that's something i suppose uh, in the depths of uh, August, uh, I hope that you're managing to get away. Maybe you're listening to the podcast when you're on your holidays. Let me know. You can email me, matt.jolly at times.radio. Uh, similarly, if you want to come on the radio and play the quiz, our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? It's very straightforward. There are 10 general knowledge questions loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get, to, and you can take your place alongside our listeners and guests. Uh, and if you get all 10 right, you'd end up as our show's Prime Minister. And who doesn't want to do that job? Uh, so email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we can get you on the radio very soon. But enough of that nonsense. Uh, coming up on today's podcast, we mark 10 years since the, well, I was going to say London riots. They began as riots in London following the shooting by the police of Mark Duggan. Uh, but they spread across the country too. It was a very weird time. as fueled partly by uh, social unrest, social media. Uh, it was the school holidays. The weather was quite warm. It was a very peculiar time. And an enormous amount of damage was caused. And lots of people ended up being punished in the courts too. Uh, so we'll reflect on that in our big thing coming up on the podcast. But first we have our columnist panel. And today's Times columnists we've got are Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. James, let's start by talking about your column in the Times today. Uh, where you sort of make the count. Everyone's been saying, oh, COVID is going to change everything. Uh, our lives will never be the same again, and you take a slightly different view. Yeah, I don't think COVID has changed either the, the kind of economic benefits of clustering or the fact that we are a social species. And I think, you know, the great urbanist Ed Glazer has been arguing that cities are going to bounce back much more strongly from COVID than people expect. And, I, and, I, and my sense is that that is right. I think that, you know, in 10, 20 years' time, uh, I, I think we will, we, the office will be very much as we would have imagined it would have been 
before COVID struck. You know, yes, there is going to be you know more use of technology and the like, but I think the benefits of being around other people and sparking off them are so great that I think in 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 ten twenty years time, both employees and employers would have recognised the kind of benefits of in person working. And one of the things that, that struck me thinking about the column was I remember I was, I was working in Washington at the time of nine eleven, and it was amazing how the debate went from how does the US deal with the rise of China to everything is about terrorists and rogue states. And now 20 years on, what is the great foreign policy debate of our time? How does the US deal with the rise of China? And it, it's almost like 9-11, this event that we thought was going to define the 21st century, was a kind of detour from history rather than an epoch-making event. And I suppose that's true if we think about uh, the 20th century. And I'm sure when you, if you were in the middle of the Spanish flu, that probably felt like quite a big deal. But in terms of the big sort of... Uh, defining forces of the of the early 20th century i mean i'm not saying i'm not saying we want a world war to trump this but you know other things happen uh and it ends up not being as we just always think the thing we win at the time is the most significant yeah and it's, i think also that that points to the resilience of cities if you look for all the events that cities went through in the, in the 20th century from uh the, the spanish flu to uh bombing raids in world war ii to to urban riots in the 60s and 70s you know, the fact that cities still came out at the end of the 20th century in such a, in such a strong shape i think tells you that the the, the, the ben- you know humans are drawn to be with other people we are a social species and, and i think that 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 fundamental truth will reassert itself what do you think yeah, Melanie? Think, are we yeah, going to be changed forever i think i think i think james is very right in the sense that we we will adapt to learning to live with this um human psychology is 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 very resilient but i think probably the the the, the defining thing of our age is is going to be climate change i mean i think that that that's the next column for you to write james how um you know how that was going to change politics and our our sort of our how we approach positively the future. That's going to be a huge challenge, I think, for for politicians going forward. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, climate change is a it, it is something that requires action right now. Otherwise, it is going to have massive uh, um, impacts on all of our lives in a way that although it's gone on for longer than possibly most of us thought 18 months ago, coronavirus is going to be a finite thing. Finite thing, whereas um, I think all the political parties, um, we were able to agree about, uh, they were all able to agree about uh, how to deal with COVID, more or less, more or less. Um, And climate change, I think, because it is so divisive, I think that's going to be a big, big challenge um, for our political classes. And um, more so for some than others, and I think that that's going to be fascinating. And how they take, how eventually we all learn in our own way to 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 go with it, to to learn to be educated and to be led to to trust our political leaders. I think that's that's going to be the the big one for the for our century. What are the things that James, struck me? James, going... you'll have to write about. <laughs> no, no, I, I think I think it's I think it's a very good point. Think of it. And I think it's one of those classic things where COVID, the impact was 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 so immediate that 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 that, that led to the ability to, to say to people, you've got to radically change your lives. You know, you know, lot, I mean, who would have thought um, to, if we'd been having this conversation two years ago and you said three times uh, in the next 18, in the next two years, the government will order everyone to stay at home and not to leave their house. 
we all would have said, no, no, that's just not possible. That's not doable. But I think that the, the, the urgency of the crisis, because of the way it was expressing itself, allow, allowed governments, gave government permission to do that. I think that, I think that, that as Melanie says, the kind of challenges with something where the, the effects are not quite as immediately obvious that, you know, how, how do you lead in those situations as a, as, as a politician? And I suppose it, it stopped me, one of the things that stopped me um, thinking ahead to uh, later on, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the uh, riots that happened 10 years ago, is that there hasn't been great social unrest caused by um, uh, coronavirus, James, in a way that, you know, all the concern originally was we didn't go into lockdown in the UK before because the Brits wouldn't wouldn't go along with it. Actually, and it, right across the world, is you know, there's been some protests at various points, but there hasn't been a great sort of public uprising uh, triggered by it in a way that you again, if we'd had this conversation two years ago, we might have expected that. Yeah, I thought so. I thought that Neil Ferguson, the, the, the imperial modeler who advises the government, I thought he was very honest when he said, you know, we saw what they were doing in China, thought that that was impossible in a, in a Western liberal democracy. And then we saw Italy do it and people accept it. And that, that, that changed their perceptions of what was possible in terms of the restrictions that, that, that you could impose. And I, mean, I think that is I think that, that I think one of the challenges for, for government is you know, how do you get back to a more as this crisis comes to an end you know how do you get back to a more healthy relationship between the the state and the citizen and i suppose it's been uh one of the things that really struck me uh melanie is that for all the complaints we've had here about whether or not you can go on holiday to spain uh if you're in australia um uh the rules have been extraordinary and i genuinely don't think that the uk government could have could have enforced the rules that they've had in australia no, it's extraordinary. I mean, it, it, it's almost totalitarian. You, 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 they're looking at people not being able to leave or come back in again. They're saying, uh, you know, if you go, you might never be able, well, not never, but you, you, when are you going to get back to see your family again? And it's, uh, you know, it, I, I have visions of this kind of tidal wave building up of all these young, sun-kissed, sun travel-crazed, young Aussies who, who, you know, as you know, fill Europe every summer um, every uh, and, 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 and work in all our pubs and, and fill old courts and all the rest of it. And, and they're going to be trapped, um, trapped in their own country. And it, it's, it's the long-term effect of that, I mean, of the frustration that's building up. Um, will, there be, will there be any backlash against the government in Australia? I don't know. Interesting. It really is interesting. Um, uh, let's uh, well, well, let's talk about uh, backlash against uh, the government here, or at least uh, the prime minister. Uh, he goes to Scotland to drum up support for the union and to uh, uh, rebuild his reputation north of the border, and uh, ends up making uh, some remarks. I mean, it's it's sort of Boris Johnson all over. Really, he he says something which is sort of a joke. He knows it's a joke. Everyone knows it's a joke, but they're not really seeing the funny side. Uh, Melanie, as you are in Scotland, I suppose I should start with you. I should explain, first of all, that um, he was being uh, pressed on um, uh, the um, uh, how he was uh, rebuilding the Tory party in uh, Scotland. And he said, we've transitioned away from coal in my lifetime. Thanks to Margaret Thatcher, we, who closed so many coal mines across the country. We had a big early start and now we're moving rapidly away from coal altogether. He then laughed and added, I thought that would get you going. Has it got people going in Scotland, Melanie? 
Oh, Lord, yes. I mean, he, he really is such an in, insensitive prat sometimes. You know, it's amusing and provocative to him. But, um, I mean, I, I'm old enough to have been a journalist through the miners' strike and the closure of the pits. And it was a very, very grim time in Scotland. And it, um, these were culture wars. You know, the, the whole the Ravenscraig, the, the the closure of the of the the mines in Fife. These were culture wars that make today's pale into insignificance. And and um, Margaret Thatcher was a bogeyman that that has persisted through generations. I mean, children were were, were put to bed with 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 sort of horror stories about how um, Thatcher had stolen Daddy's job, and and, and now she's she 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 has she's kind of gone into the the, the rock strata of of of, um, of Scottish culture. And for him, he he really just doesn't get it. I I it it's very sad because it's the sort of thing. I mean, Ruth Davidson. Can you imagine how she must have when she heard that? She comes from Fife. I imagine what she did when she heard that. I mean, what a, what a prat. And I suppose the problem is, uh, Joe, because there's part of me that thinks, uh, I understand the joke uh, or, you know, the, the light-hearted mark he was making, but this goes to the heart of the problem that Boris Johnson, if he'd done that in his column in The Telegraph, it probably would have been fine as a sort of uh, ironic remark in a column. But he's not a columnist anymore. He is the Prime Minister. Yeah, I think one of the ironies about this is that, that in one of Boris Johnson's books, he describes uh, the first time he was a, a parliamentary candidate in, in, in Clwyd South in Wales and how he made a, a, a speech about um, BSE with lots of jokes at the, the Blair government's expense and its handling of the crisis. And uh, sorry, put him out, I think, uh, not BSE. And then it, and, 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 and he expected the audience to laugh because he thought they were good jokes. And then at the end, uh, one of the association came up to him and said, you've got to realise that the people you're addressing are, 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 are either farmers or no farmers. And this is their actual livelihoods you're talking about. So, so it's, and I think the irony is he, he's kind of committed the same mistake again, if you see what I mean. Because uh, as Melanie says, you know, this rakes up memories of, of the 80s in, in the most in a, in a kind of difficult way and I also think it's a particular problem for him that it came on a visit to Scotland um, you know that the Scottish Tories have had a certain hesitation about Boris Johnson I think you know, it's quite telling that he didn't visit during the, the, the Hollywood election campaign earlier this year and, and so I think I think I think it's a it, it, it was um, an ill-placed as well as an Ill, ill-judged remark and at a time yeah. when uh, sorry go on Millie. No, it, it's it's he just does not understand that you know the rate is radioactive, radioactive. To mention Mrs. Thatcher, to mention the coal mines, especially together, um, it, it they're like plutonium. They have this afterlife, you know, that that is persisting, you know, well into this century, and um, it is that utter sort of it, it's an arrogance which. Which sadly um, is, is is never going to to to, to work in Scotland, and um, oof, I, I I don't know where I don't know how he he comes back from that really. But uh, other than to to uh, just hope that that um, someone someone in, in Scotland, some of the Scottish Tories have a slightly um, 
better damage limitation than he does. I suppose just to put the sort of the counterpoint a bit, um, the idea the, the people who are most cross about this, uh, we're never going to vote for uh, Boris Johnson or or the Conservative Party. Um, you know, it, it's it's great fun for the SNP and the Labour parties like, to, you know, like you said, we fight all those culture wars and that sort of thing. Is this not all every Boris Johnson's uh, opponents always uh, underestimate his appeal uh, to the public and overestimate the impact that uh, a joke like this uh, will actually have? What do you think, James? I, I think there's truth to that, Matt. But I think I think Scotland is a slightly different situation for the simple reason that, that you're not just thinking about a general election and who will vote for your party, but how people would vote in any second independence referendum. Which is which is why I think it makes it it, it, it a slightly different political situation than than, than the rest of the UK. Um, I but but I think I think there is a point here that in some ways the public have priced in a lot of the things about Boris Johnson and uh, and you know wh- wh- whether his sense of humour is, is always appropriate for the moment and the like. But I think but I think that Scotland and the referendum does make it a slightly different to to the rest of the UK in this regard. Mm, yeah. I suppose before, before I let you both go, because we've been talking about jokes and his joke landing party, have either of you got a particularly good joke you want to share share with the class? Can I can I ask how many politicians does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> four, got... four, one to change it and the other three to deny it. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Can you top that, Jobs? Uh, no, my, my, mine is nowhere near as good as that. What, what do you get if you cross a, a snowman with a shark? I don't know. What do you get if you cross a snowman with a shark? Frostbite. Ah, oh, very good. Very good. See, I knew, I'm not even sure we, we primed you for that. They were both much better than, than we might have feared. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we reflect 10 years on from the 2011 riots. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, it's 10 years since this. This is a public order warning. 
let me first of all completely condemn the scenes that we have seen on our television screens and people have witnessed in their communities. These are sickening scenes. I just want to say thank you very much to everybody who's come here to volunteer, to clear up the mess of last night, everybody who's come to repair the damage. That is the real spirit of London, I understand that. And we are certainly going to be dealing with that. Council buildings that deal with customer complaints smashed to pieces by mindless, mindless people last night. The vast majority of people in Tottenham reject what has happened here last night. A community that was already hurting has now had the heart ripped out of it. That was, uh, you just heard there, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, of course, David Lammy, the Labour MP, you will hear from again in a moment. All uh, 10 years ago, when those riots erupted, uh, Mark Duggan was shot dead by police officers in North, North Tottenham in North London on the 4th of August 2011. Two days later, exactly 10 years ago today, a protest was planned in Tottenham, but it sparked something bigger. It led to some of the biggest riots in English history, not just in London, but across the country. Earlier, I caught up with David Lammy, the MP for Tottenham and Shadow Justice Secretary, and I started by asking him at what point he realised that the death of Mark Duggan was going to spark something bigger. I was hugely concerned following the killing of Mark Duggan on the Thursday that tensions were building on the Friday. There was a march organised to the police station, and I'm afraid the borough commander in the local area was on holiday. The family were very badly treated. They'd found out about the death of Mark on the the news. And then by Saturday afternoon, when things started to feel hairy and the rioting began, it was clear really in those initial moments that the policing didn't seem to be working. You know, the, a car went up in flames in the middle of the high road. Very quickly, there was looting, there was fear, there was concern, and it felt like if you like those rioting had taken over the streets and you might remember Matt that the big cry at the time was where are the police Uh, and of course what also happened was whilst there was rioting on Tottenham High Road um, in Wood Green just three miles away Wood Green shopping city was largely ransacked because there were no police there and I think that that played out on the news channels of course and then what happened is we saw um, this sort of fire lit across the country and um, Croydon, of course, in London and other parts of London, but at Birmingham, Wolverhampton, uh, Salford, it, it, it just sort of took over. And I think the key thing also to recall was there was Blackberry Messenger, which has fallen away now, but it was a means of communication. And there was a sense in which rioters organised rioting, organised ransacking had sort of outfoxed the police at the time and the police came under heavy criticism. I do remember because I remember reporting on it at the time and it, there was this sort of slight feeling that it, there was almost a perfect storm of uh, it was school holidays, it was uh, it was quite warm, you know, was the, the, the weather was good. Like you said, the police, you know, took the decision to be quite cautious, but that obviously had implications. You had the, the rolling TV news and then throw into that mix, like you said, social media. 
uh, and the ability to to organise and and I suppose spread message, both organise writing, but also then spread information about writing so that other people could see what was happening. So it doesn't. It's not just a thing which is just happens in Tottenham and is on the news that night. It's happening in in real time and. Uh, but then also you throw into the mix, you know, the where the areas where it did spread to were areas where there were poverty, bad schools, and all that sort of thing. And so it, you just it was a, a touch paper, I suppose, which uh, was lit and spread. So I wonder if you was that just a one-off thing, or or could that happen again? Given that I mean, I remember at the time, you know, the the big question was. How did this happen? How did this one incident spark? You, you know, somebody gets shot in Tottenham. Why does that make someone go in Nicotelli in Manchester? Uh, so makes... I think that, look, all riots take a spark. And certainly the spark on this occasion was the police killing of Mark Duggan. That was the spark. Uh, but it's absolutely clear that if you look at the review panel that was set up by the government and Boris Johnson, the mayor at the time, they made 65 recommendations. And they looked quite hard at these communities where there were rioters. They spoke to the rioters. They looked at the court cases. 3,000 people were put through the courts, by the way. Um, And they were talking about resilience, about character uh, in communities. They wanted to focus on the troubled families that exist in every community across the country and how the state was supporting and gathering around those individuals. And I'm afraid on all of those counts, youth services, support for troubled families, uh, unemployment uh, in areas like mine, but also beyond youth unemployment at the moment is running at 41% of youth un- inactive. The, these, I'm afraid, on these issues have not got better. They've got worse. There are particular issues like stop and search, of course, which again has got worse. But I think across these communities, the underlying issues of having a stake in society, a stake such that if you've got a mortgage and a job, very unlikely that you're going to smash up your local neighbourhood. If you haven't got a mortgage and a job, um, if you haven't got a stake in society, then I'm afraid the results can be very, very different. And that's what the review panel found. And it's probably best to go back to their work and say, look, David Cameron and Boris Johnson said we were going to fix a broken society. Has that happened? I'm not sure it has. And as well, I know your colleague, Steve Reid, the Shadow Communities uh, Secretary, uh, was um, talking about this yesterday with the report, the final report of the Riots, Communities and Victims panel. And he he was making the warning that those circumstances are still there, the deep social inequalities uh, still exist. Um, do you, are you fearful that there could be something else which triggers a similar thing? Not least because actually the last... 18 months have been particularly tough on on young people, whether it's, like you said, in the jobs market, the educa- you know, exams, schools, education, universities, all of that. Um, and uh, lots of them are feeling even more disaffected. I don't risk riots on anybody. They were the toughest, darkest, bleakest days of my 21 years in public life. But I'm afraid the underlying conditions remain. And it would be irresponsible, I think, um, if I didn't say very clearly that those underlying conditions do remain across society. And there are um, some alarming aspects of where we are. Inequality has risen. Um, Community resilience is lower 
as a result of both the pandemic, but also as a result to significant cuts to local authorities. Our young people are uh, really experiencing pain, hardship, and a mental health crisis to some extent. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I think we've got to take very, very seriously this 10-year moment. We've got to revisit the review that was set up and we've got to redouble our efforts across communities. Half a billion pounds worth of damage, five people lost their lives and hundreds of police officers were injured. Uh, this was a seriously bleak time and we should reflect very, very carefully on what happened and what we can do to avoid it again. Uh, just finally, David Lamy, I'm just conscious because we we're talking to you because it was in your Tottenham constituency where this started. Tottenham sadly has a has a history or association with with riots. But I just wanted wanted to maybe try and look for the positive a bit. How are things currently in your uh, patch? Um, how do people fit there feel uh, ten years on? And are there signs of Having outlined all of the the worrying uh, signs that this could be repeated, are there? What, let's focus on some of the positives about what's happening in, well, in Tottenham. Uh, it's a resilient community. We've got wonderful, wonderful charities and organisations doing their utmost. Um, later on today, I will be on Tottenham High Road with faith leaders coming together uh, to reflect on all the progress that has been made and with an organisation, Haringey Citizens. So um, uh, if you walked up the Tottenham High Road today, it, it, it would be hard to recognise the burnt out buildings, uh, the bricks and broken glass that existed 10 years on. I mean, it, it's amazing how at least physically the environment has changed. So there is much that's positive, and it's also important to recognise that even in relation to those rights, the vast majority of young people and families in the community I represent remained terrified in their homes during those four days of rioting, uh, did not participate in the riots. And indeed here in Tottenham, because of the media coverage and what have you, there were quite a lot of opportunists that came in across the country to participate in that rioting, many of whom didn't know Mark Duggan, had nothing to do with Mark Duggan. So uh, I remain positive, optimistic and hopeful about the community that I represent. That was David Lammy, uh, the Labour MP for Tottenham and Shadow Justice Secretary speaking to me earlier, uh, reflecting on what happened in his constituency. Well, uh, back in 2011, that summer, the trouble where it broke out of Tottenham, it, uh, then erupted in Enfield, Islington, Walthamstow, spreading to other areas, including Bromley, Camden, Clapham, Croydon, Ealing, Hackney, Lewisham and Woolwich across the capital. And within days... It reached other parts of the country. Birmingham, West Bromwich, Manchester, Salford, Leicester and Wolverhampton all saw trouble. But one of the most iconic images uh, from the virus was the fire which engulfed Croydon's oldest independent furniture shop, the House of Reeves. This is the owner, Graham Reeves, speaking to Channel 4 News back in 2011. It's, uh, it's a tragedy. You know, five generations of family and our businesses absolutely had it. Mindless violence. And we will probably, I don't know how we get over it. Well, 10 years on, I'm pleased to say that the House of Reeves is still going. We can speak to the owner, Graham Reeves. Hi, Graham. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Uh, yes. nice, nice, to, nice to have you uh, with us. Um, what, is it, what goes through your mind when you think back 
to what happened 10 years ago and the moment that you found out what, what had happened to the shop? It's difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm not as sort of eloquent as some maybe on the radio and things like that because it's not something that I do very, very rarely. But listening to myself just then, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it was traumatic. It's still, you know, it's something that you don't want to happen. You don't want it to happen in the future. Um, but the business, we are still trading, you know, and uh, we've been trading for 10 years with the support of an awful lot of good people in Croydon. And uh, I've got to thank my lucky stars we are trading um, because uh, that, it was a horrendous night. It was the only um, time in my, you know, I've been here 45 years myself personally working in the shop. You know, I sent the people home that night early, the shop workers, because it was really looking unruly outside. It's the only time I've ever done it. You know, you know, you know just said, look, it's too dodgy outside. Go home. We're shut in the shop, which is what we did. Um, my brother, he stayed on doing some work, in the, and he was actually present when it was, you know, the building was torched. It's very stressful. That's what it is. The stress is really bad for you. It's just not a good thing. Um, no, of course. And, and yeah. the fact that uh, how how has Croydon uh, and uh, House of Weaves specifically uh, bounced back from it? How long did it take before you could think about just running your business and not think about what happened on that night in 2011? Well, you were just straight in the thick of it. It was like, you know, it takes years because you're trying to sort out. Uh, there's just so much to sort out and you're not prepared for it. I mean, all the people's furniture that was in the shop, some, a lot of it's sold to people. And so it's, it's other people's money that you've, you know, it's all gone. You can't deliver it to people because it's burnt. Um, so it, it's really difficult. And the last thing we want to do is we don't want to, didn't want to close down. You know, we don't want to leave a debt or leave people disappointed. And the people was, well, everyone was fantastic. And somehow we've managed to, um, you know, carry on in Croydon trading and many, many shops around me, particularly in this area. Um, obviously, I don't know all the other areas of, you know, closed, big department stores are closed and, you know, it's, it's tough. And then you get, then you get this pandemic, which is, um, again, um, I think we must be good at crisis management, the Reeves family. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should put you in charge of the government. We'd all bounce back uh, much more quickly, Graham. We um, could just do, what... yeah. I mean, yes, we could do. They keep saying, what I don't like, they keep saying that they learn these lessons, but uh, if they did, they'd be much cleverer than they appear to be, I think. Well, I'm um, glad. Uh, it's really nice to, to speak to Graham um, uh, and for you to tell your story. And also, I'm glad that the House of Reeves has uh, is bounced back and I hope that, you know, you'll overcome what's happened in the past 12 months, just as you did what happened 10 years ago. Graham, it's really good to speak to you. Lovely. OK, thank you very much. Graham Reeves there, uh, who runs uh, House of Reeves, that famous uh, furniture shop in Croydon uh, that was burnt down uh, during the riots. Well, uh, the looter, uh, Gordon Thompson, was jailed in 2012 for 11 and a half years for starting the fire. Uh, he stole a laptop uh, from uh, the House of Reeves in Croydon uh, before setting fire to a sofa. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like I said, he was, he was jailed for 11 and a half years back in 2012. So I was looking back this morning at some of the reporting that I did on it when I was at The Independent on Sunday, and, and it, to some extent, even then, in the thick of it, we couldn't really work out why uh, what had happened had uh, really happened. Well, one, one person who probably knows better than most, uh, Professor uh, Stephen Riker, Professor of Psychology at the University of St Andrews, who wrote Mad Mobs and Englishman, Myths and Realities of the 2011 Rights. Uh, joins me now. Hi, Stephen. Hello. 
Uh, we're also joined on the line by Francis Cook, uh, Chief, Char- Francis Crook, sorry, Chief Executive of the Howard League for Prison Reform. Hi, Francis. Oh, we'll, we'll catch up with Francis just a sec. Uh, Stephen, uh, <laughs> I thought she was there. Uh, Stephen, um, uh, oh, Francis is there. Perfect. Everyone's here. Well, I'm, lovely, here. Lovely, I'm lovely, here. I'm lovely here. Lovely I'm stuff, here. Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. <laughs> uh, Stephen, let's let's um, start with you. And I know at the risk of saying, could you read out your entire book in, in three minutes? Uh, but um, uh, I was really amazed, actually, that we that when I reread some of the reporting from uh, In the Thick of It 10 years ago, uh, we wrote a Q and A at the Independent on Sunday. Why did this happen? Uh, and our response was, "It's the million dollar question. Everyone has a theory." Uh, and he, so back then we didn't know. Ten years on, can you answer that question? Why did uh, what might have been an isolated incident of the the police uh, shooting Mark Duggan in North London become this this strange uh, period in Britain, where, or at least in England, where? protests, riots, looting spread across the country? Well, uh, will you give me a million uh, dollars if I answer the question? That, that, that... <laughs> I think um, you'll have to ask the Independent on Sunday for that, and I'm not sure that's still going. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, when riots happen, there's, there's almost universally a particular pattern of explanation um, that um, governments, much of the media... Uh, will tell you that they are um, inexplicable explosions, that they are eruptions of irrationality into the world, that they are a function of the inherent violence of crowds, of mad mobs, or else it's bad people, it's criminals, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's the riffraff of society getting together. Afterwards, a few years later, people recognise that those explanations don't hold water at all, and they recognise that there are social and structural factors, that these things don't come out of nowhere, that what happens to start a riot symbolises for people a much wider pattern uh, of, of experience. And so, you know, in 1981, in 1985, at the time, they were dismissed, in the words of uh, Douglas Hurd, as a cry for loot, as mad mobs on the, ra- uh, on the rampage. By 2011, we recognised that racism and inequality were central to what happened. And again, in 2011, uh, David Cameron stood up in Parliament on the 11th of August after five days of rioting and said they were criminality, pure and simple. And Ken Clark weighed in and talked about a feral underclass. And again, it was a way of dismissing things. It was a way of saying, you know, it's not us, Gov. It's not our problem. We, we haven't done anything to make this happen. It's purely you know, the badness of crowds and the badness of crowd members. And now, 10 years later, most people will accept that racism and inequality were central. If you want to look at the three factors which best predicted which boroughs rioted in London, they were number one, deprivation. The most deprived boroughs were most likely to, uh, to riot. Secondly, level of stop and search over the preceding uh, years. So those boroughs which rioted had twice as much stop and search per person as those that didn't. And thirdly, attitudes towards the police. And the shooting for, uh, of Mark Duggan, for many people, symbolised that reality of inequality, deprivation and mistreatment. And those are the things that we really need to address and we still need to address. Because the problem is, 10 years later, it's too late. You know, the heat has gone out of the situation the impetus to do something was gone. What we need at the time of riots is to understand that riots tell us something about the communities who riot. They are, in the words of Martin Luther King, the voice of the oppressed. 
Well, let's listen to that voice. We don't have to agree with it, but let's hear what are the problems, what are the grievances, what are the issues which lead people to feel the only way they have voice is through violence. And I think next time riots happen, and I fear they will, we need to be ready to listen, to hear, and to do something immediately. Francis Cook uh, from the Howard League for Prison Reform. I was looking back at this, and I think within about within a year of uh, the the riots happening, it was reported that uh, twelve hundred thirty, almost thirteen hundred people were jailed for their part in the trouble. Uh, prison sentences totaling more than one thousand eight hundred years. And I presume that if if people part of those if some of the people who took part in those riots got caught up in it, or I mean that's that's life changing, isn't it? Ending up in ending up in prison for a night or two of of madness, really. It's it's life devastating. Can I, can I just correct you on one thing? It's the Howard Lee for penal reform, not prison reform, because we look wider than just at prisons. I mean, obviously we do concentrate on prisons, but there we look at the across the whole system. No, quite right. That's quite um, right. Yeah, well corrected. Well corrected. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, I mean, there were people who were sentenced to prison for um, walking away with a bottle of water. I mean, they were accused and convicted of burglary. Uh, the, the courts were sitting at, all night to, to process people. And you're right that a, a conviction for um, riot or even burglary or whatever it was, that, that the range of um, convictions that came across, was absolutely life devastating for people and often for very minor things that people who happened to be living in the area. I mean, what was happening was the criminalisation of, of whole districts and particularly of young people um, and their lives were, were absolutely devastating. And of course, prisons, as we know, are really grotty, dangerous, violent, rat-infested places um, it's hardly going to to help people on their life's journey, particularly young people, if they spend some time in prison and often very long sentences for relatively minor offences. I, mean, I just want to sort of look look back, and it's it. We've now the question about whether this could happen again. Of, of course, it could. I don't want to predict that it's going to. Uh, that would be that would be irresponsible. But we have a generation of young people now who've had. Very little support from public services. So if you remember, when the Conservative and, and the, the, the government came in, in in 2010, this is not a party political statement. You know, it's, it's what happened, which was austerity. Sure Start nurseries were closed. Youth services were closed. Um, money was taken away from voluntary organisations working in local areas. So you have a teenage group now who've grown up without public services. And at the same time, you have young people who've experienced very racist and brutal policing, particularly in London. Um, and of course, policing is the expression and infliction of power of the state. So they see the state as being against them. There's no support there. There's no public services for them. And yet they also see the, the power of the state being used against them in stop and search and quite brutal policing. So the toxic mix... Mm -hmm is yeah. there, the underlying issues are there, and all it needs is something awful to happen, like um, a murder of a black man or, or a killing of, or something dreadful like that. And uh, it, it could easily happen again. Uh, let's uh, finally, Stephen uh, Riker, let's just look sort of slightly further into the future. What could be done now by politicians, policymakers, community leaders, whatever, to try and avoid a repeat of it. I mean, in a way, the fact that we're talking about this happening 10 years ago 
and we haven't seen anything like it again in the last 10 years. We should probably take as a positive and we shouldn't get carried away with the idea that this happens every day on the streets of uh, of Britain. But what sort of practical policy decisions could be taken now to try to ensure that we don't see a repeat? So you're quite right that riots haven't happened um, since. And riots are comparatively rare. The reason for that is you don't only need the background conditions, the background conditions of a sense of um, general alienation and a particular antagonism towards the police and the state. You also need things to go wrong in multiple ways. So if you look um, at 2011... I mean, first of all, there was the shooting of Mark Duggan, Okay, that particular incident, which, as Francis said, encapsulated for people that sense of their relationship to the police. And then the police failed to engage with the family. They failed to set up family liaison. And then when the family went to the police, went to the uh, police station, um, there was nobody there to meet them. There were no senior officers. There was a failure of engagement on about three occasions, which then allowed people to congregate, people to feel uh, antagonistic towards the police, um, for there to be uh, friction leading into conflict with the police. So you need a lot of things to go wrong for a riot to happen. And the absence of riots should not lead us to be complacent about the broader conditions. I think those broader conditions still are there. So I think there are three things we need to do. I mean, first of all, quite right, austerity is at the root of riots. I mean, there's, there are analyses which show that riots are far more likely to happen uh, under conditions of recession and conditions of cuts, not least because what then happens is people are out of work, there aren't youth centres for people to go to, they're out on the streets, they begin to get into negative interactions with the police, the police becomes the face of the other, and then with these particular incidents that happen, riots can occur. So that's the first thing. The yeah. second thing is that in many ways, the riots were a failure of engagement between the police and the community. And I think it shows that policing has always got to be a matter of not imposing yourself on the community, but of working with the community and being seen to act for the community. So I think the issues of policing are equally critical. So we've got to look at the broader social, structural and economic background. We've also got to look at forms of policing is absolutely central. Well, it's been fascinating to speak to you. Really um, uh, interesting uh, topic and good to be able to revisit. Uh, uh, Stephen Riker, Professor of Psychology at the University of St Andrews and uh, author of Mad Mobs and Englishman Myths and Realities of the 2011 Riots. We also heard from Francis Crook, Chief Executive of the Howard League uh, for Penal Reform. Uh, we'll make sure we get that right. Really good to speak to you uh, both. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.